0: I have to ask. I'm Isaac Chotiner. My guest today is Jennifer Egan, the novelist, short story writer, and journalist. Egan has written several novels, the most famous of which is A Visit from the Goon Squad, which won the Pulitzer Prize in 2011. Egan grew up in San Francisco, where some of Goon Squad is set, and her latest novel is Manhattan Beach, much of which takes place in Brooklyn, where she currently lives. It's set during the 30s and 40s, and it weaves together a story of a father and a daughter into larger subjects: organized crime around the Navy Yards and piers in New York City, the Depression, America's entry into the Second World War, the rise of women in the workplace, and much else. Jennifer Egan joins me now. Jennifer, thank you for being on the podcast.
1: My pleasure.
0: Where are you? Uh, where are you joining us from?
1: Jackson, Mississippi.
0: Yeah, what's going on down there?
1: Um. Well. <laughs> It's raining, um, and I'm going to be speaking at a bookstore. Uh, apparently, a wonderful bookstore called Lemuria uh, later today.
0: Uh, do you enjoy doing these tours when your when your books come out?
1: I do. I think part of it is I, I just publish so infrequently that I, I'm ready to meet some readers and and plunge back into the world by the time it happens each time.
0: Does does going on the tour ever change the way you think about the book you've written by talking to readers or, or seeing something when you're when you're traveling around?
1: Oh, completely. I mean, I think it helps me understand what the book is for the first time, because even though, I mean, my, I, I, it's not that I don't think a lot about that, of course, and make very careful plans and outlines, but I think there's a certain way in which it all remains mysterious and intuitive enough that there are certain connections I don't make until later. So it really is kind of the last step in the process.
0: So like, what would be an example of that if, if one comes to mind?
1: Well, I, I don't have an example from the new book because I'm st- I, this is literally my first tour stop. <laughs> but um with with a visit from the Goon Squad, which has a, a chapter in PowerPoint about pauses in rock and roll songs in the book, it didn't really occur to me until I was on tour that the placement of that PowerPoint chapter in the book, Is exactly mirrors the placement of pauses in most rock and roll songs so that in a sense the chapter itself is my pause if you will
0: Uh, so how did you how did how did you come across that that interesting nugget
1: I think someone said to me um, (laughs) I noticed you put the you place the chapter in exactly the spot that musicians tend to place the pause in the sort of penultimate moment and I said ah yes of course I did thinking oh my god <laughs> what? maybe I did
0: well I have no observations that interesting in the course of this interview but um, let me ask you um, I was reading the new book and one of the things that was really interesting to me was you're a writer who I think over your fiction has shown very a lot of interest in America and American history and American culture and and it's obviously at a very interesting time we're at right now but this is a this is also a work of historical fiction so what was it that appealed to you about doing a historical Historical work right now well,
1: well I, I first of all, I should say i 've been thinking about this book and researching it for a really long time, um, and I think it the impetus really started with nine eleven uh, when a couple of things happened. one is I mean I lived in New York at that time, and the city really became and felt like a kind of war zone for the next several months. Um, And so I think that led me naturally to think about the last time that New York might have felt that way. You know, there was a real sense of impending peril and possible attack. And that was, of course, true during World War II. There was a fear of a sea invasion. There was fear of an air invasion. So I think it just led me to be curious about being in New York at that time. And I think the broader The question that 9/11 raised for me was really about the trajectory of American global power. It felt those events, that that attack, felt like an important step in the story of American global power. And I, it led me to be interested in the origin of that power, that the moment when it really coalesced, which was during and after World War II, and what it, and, and what it felt like to be in the midst of, of that coalescence. So I think those are the kind of broad questions that led me To have a feeling which I really have to have in order to write fiction, which is just a kind of excitement about a particular time and place and a wish to just be there, if you will, whatever that might mean. Um, And so that's really what led me into the research. And then I was doing research really the whole time I was working on the two novels before that, The Keep and The Visit from the Goon Squad. Uh, And it's a lucky thing that I was, actually, because a lot of the people that I talked to and interviewed as part of my research for this book were in their 80s in the first decade of the 21st century and and are no longer with us now. So I I feel like I sort of got in at the last possible moment in terms of finding, you know, a significant number of people who had the time I was interested in clearly in their memories.
0: Yeah, for people who haven't read the book, what, what sort of people are you talking about that you wanted to talk to for research purposes?
1: Well, I was interested in anyone who who had lived a long time in New York and had a clear memory, first of all, because I've got, you know, as far back as the Depression, I'm writing about children and what they did, their their pastimes and games. The book takes place in the 30s and 40s, and it follows uh, really three people, um, a young woman named Anna Kerrigan who works at the Brooklyn Navy Yard. So I was interested in anyone who had worked there, and especially women who had worked there during the war. Uh, it also in- involves a lot of deep-sea diving, and so that certainly required research. I've never even scuba-dived, uh, and so I spent a lot of time talking to Army divers and even attended a reunion of Army divers at one point, point. and then finally organized crime, which is was just inherent in waterfront life, um, and I, I, I sadly don't have any... Um, Ancient ancient gangsters I could find, yeah, I was going to say I was hoping were. for
0: I was hoping for something there,, um, but no gangsters that you hung around with
1: no I, I, not to my knowledge but uh, i but but I did talk to you know one thing that became clear to me right away is that the gang the figure of the gangster was a very romantic one at the time that I was writing about, and gangsters were a more um, kind of a, an accepted part of of uh, respectable society, or at least they were around in a way that we don't experience so much now. And I think that that really arose from prohibition and the fact that organized crime really took over the liquor business, the, the movement and the sale of liquor, and therefore became... A, you know much more accepted part of of uh, you know people's everyday lives. Well, um, and, and so, there, oh, go on. Sorry.
0: Well, no, I was just going to say I was shocked. I mean, I think you're right, and I was shocked at how long that lasted. I was watching something about John Gotti, and even the way he was treated in the media in like the '80s is kind of unimaginable now. That he was just sort of the way he was sort of part of gossipy New York uh, society.
1: Yeah, it's true. He he's a very in a way he's a sort of holdover figure, you know, who's very <laughs> dapper, the Dapper Don. Um Yes, I, I, you don't see that so much anymore. Uh, but that was really true in in the, the 30s and 40s. Um, I mean, there was a gangster named Frank Costello who really was, it seems, a crime boss. He lived in a fancy building um, right on Central Park. He there were lots of fancy people living in his building. They all knew what he did for a living. Um, and there were also, a, I mean, my my gangster, the Dexter Styles, the the sort of underworld figure that I write the most about, is in the nightclub business and that was a very normal thing at that time there were there were organized crime figures who also ran clubs and those were sexy clubs to go to
0: let me ask you i mean you're you're a novelist who's also known for doing a lot of reporting repertorial journalism which I think is is somewhat um, somewhat rare because I think many of the novelists and story writers who who do nonfiction it's often in the form of essays or you know um, book reviews. And, and so I was wondering, how do you approach, because reading this novel and just hearing you talk, it's clear you did an incredible amount of research for this to try to get the scene right, um, the time and scene right. So how do you approach writing a novel or especially a historical novel differently than you would, uh, you know, a reported feature for the New York Times magazine?
1: Well, the big difference is that with with an assignment from the times, I know what I'm what I need I know what I need to learn about. The strange thing about fiction is because I really begin with a time and a place and no characters or story, I don't actually know what my story is until I start writing it. People find that hard to believe, and I, I totally understand why, but I'm telling you, that really is how it works. Well, what, um, what do you mean I, by
0: that? How do you start writing if you don't know what it is? Maybe this is a chicken and egg question. but
1: Well, I just sit down and I start, and the key is I do it by hand. So what I'm trying to do is get into sort of a meditative state where I'm just writing and writing and writing and certain things begin to emerge on the page. I mean, I'll have an inkling. I had an inkling that there was a a gangster in this book and I knew that I was going to be writing about a young woman working at the Navy Yard. But when I sat down and actually started, I was very surprised to find myself writing about uh, years before that when this woman is still a girl and visiting the gangster with her father on a kind of work errand. So these things just sort of happen. And So I write a first draft by hand, and then I type it up, see what I've got, and at that point I start making very detailed analytical plans and figuring out what I need to do to own this material and shape it into something worthwhile. So the thing that was challenging about this was I needed to do a fair amount of research just to even blunder my way through a first draft. I mean, someone who's never scuba dived simply cannot fake their way through a deep sea diving scene. I mean, I just, for all I knew, they literally dove into the water. I mean, I just didn't know. So I had to do some research just to write that first draft. But only after I had it did I really know what I needed to know. So obviously that's quite different from working for the Times. This, the similarity, though, is just the way that I approached the research itself, which is, you know, archival um, with, with a, an emphasis on, on imbibing as much data and, and just hard fact as possible, but then in, uh, human beings are the, are the ones who animate everything. I mean, I, I, would, I, I find again and again, no matter how much reading I do, I can't really bring it to life without, without talking to people who either experience that particular thing or know a lot about it. So it's that mix of the human and the, and the factual that, that really is this, this common to both.
0: Do you, do you ever think there's a danger for novelists in sort of amassing too much detail and that they're, you know, the, a work of fiction can feel uh, sort of laden with, with facts and figures and technical, deal, technical you know, uh, if you're writing about science or something? I mean, do, do, is that something that, that you ever worry about or that's in your mind?
1: Of course, absolutely. Now, I may not have completely nailed that. <laughs> As I'm reading some reviews, I'm like, hmm, maybe I did leave a little too much in. Um, I, I have new sympathy for how that happens because there's a way in which one tr- – it's, so, it's not that one wants to show off. It's that, at least for me, I, I really fell in love with the research that I was doing for this I, I was blinded by love in a way, and, and it, it, the metaphor really holds because it, I, I feel like it becomes very hard to judge what is too much, because to me, everything became fascinating. Now, that being said, I, I cut reams, um, I, especially about the, the, the parts at sea, um, but you know it is it can be a difficult call to make and and one has to rely a lot on editors and and others to help because there is this this absolute kind of besotted feeling that starts to happen about attaining fluency in an area about which I knew nothing before.
0: You mentioned a few minutes ago something about, the. for people who haven't read A Visit from the Goon Squad, your, your novel from 2011, it has a very unique kind of uh, format, let's say, and um, I, I read a quote from you where you were talking about the types of books you want to write, and you said, essentially, if I've read it or done it before, then I'm not interested uh, in doing it again, was the, was the upshot. And so can can you talk about why writing in in sort of different formats and styles is so important to keeping your interest as a writer?
1: Uh, I mean, I think that it has to do with what it is that makes me want to write in the first place, which for me is very close to what makes me want to read. It really is a kind of escape, a sort of transport out of everyday life into a charged, other world. That's the experience I'm looking for, as a reader and as a writer. And certainly that's what I want to provide for readers. For me, it's very hard to achieve that experience if I feel like what I'm writing about overlaps with my own life. So what that means is that I I have a very hard time writing about characters that are like me, and I cannot write about people I know. They, They just, it doesn't work out. And believe me, my friends and family are pretty relieved about that. Um, but, you know, so, so for me, that is the motivation. Now, it comes with a weakness. I, I wish I were better at writing about, I, I wish I were even capable of writing about myself or people I know. And as you pointed out, I don't really write essays and, or, God forbid, memoirs because I'm just not very good at it. I, I don't feel an excitement as I do it. I, I feel kind of dullness settle over me. So well, when you, that's that's <clears throat> what I'm trying to avoid. When
0: you say that you don't write people you know, do you, are, are you sort of saying that you don't write about you know your your kids or your husband, or are you saying you don't write about the types of people that you spend your time with?
1: I never. I, I think it's it's not exactly well. Certainly, it's neither of those. But I think that it it's more that I I can't imagine. Using a, a per, the personality or sort of the the identity, even masked, of someone I knew, and importing it into a book that that would I would I couldn't do it. I actually don't think I would be capable of it. So all of the people I encounter in my work are are people I've never met before, which is kind of fun. Um, I love it. So that that is it really is just I'm looking for the excitement that makes me able to and motivated to do what I love to do.
0: You took a bit of a shot at memoir writing, which is fine. But every time I read something about you, uh, you always uh, you always uh, snicker at, uh, at the idea of writing a memoir. What is it about writing a memoir that that you find distasteful?
1: Well, it's it just, you know, it, it, it basically is saying, here's the here's the thing I least like to do while I'm writing, and now I'm going to do just that for a whole book. <laughs> it just sounds like a nightmare. That being said, I think I ultimately will try to write a memoir, and part of the reason for that is that while researching Manhattan Beach and reading a lot of oral history and, and personal reminiscences and, and even correspondence, I came to really appreciate the value of someone just making sure to try to tell their story in whatever way while they're still here to do it. Uh I, I just felt so grateful to the people who made sure they did that because I as the you know, the, the researcher at a later point was was hanging on those recollections and those little memories and details of a life.
0: When when I was doing research, uh, not quite your level of uh, diving research, but re- some research for this interview, I uh, I was thinking about that because you you said something that I thought was interesting, which is that people view their own lives as not real, but they view other people's lives as real. Which I wasn't sure if I agreed with, but was an interesting way of, of phrasing it, and, and does seem like a challenge if you think that and you're you're trying to write a memoir.
1: Well, I think it's funny. I I I think I maybe I may have misspoken in that moment. I think I tend to think of other people's lives as real and my life as not real. But I think some people may feel exactly the opposite. It may be one of those many interesting ways you can divide people. I, You're
0: you not know, a solipsist. That's good. That's good.
1: Well, it's, it, no, but I have the opposite problem sometimes, although it works well as a journalist, where I feel like I, I dissolve easily, <laughs> whatever that means. I forget that I'm there or who I am easily, and in a certain way, I want to. So I guess it's just one of those funny things. I want to disappear into another world, and I think for some people, their own lives are kind of the anchor around which they can organize their creative experience. It's just just a question of what gets you to do the thing we're all trying to do
0: what's the, what's What's the most interesting aspect of your life that people would be interested in reading about?
1: I don't know. I mean, I, I guess you know, and when I think, okay, what what do I have to tell to, to future generations? I guess, you know, be I, in a way, my experience as a New Yorker over this period. and And actually, another aspect that I think about a lot as a fiction writer is just the, changes in technology that I've witnessed in my lifetime. I think that is certainly the, the, well, let's hope I don't become a witness to World War III or, you know, the inundation <laughs> of, of, of you know, America with seawater. So we're, I'm hoping I don't get, I don't see either of those things. Or both. In the rest of I my think lifetime. both is a
0: good possibility too. Yeah. <laughs>
1: But assuming that I don't, I think the thing that I think about a lot is the fact that from the time, I mean, I just turned 55, from the time I was born until the time I went to college at 18, I had not witnessed a single telecommunications development. (laughs) It was still the case that if you made a phone call, either the phone rang and rang and rang or someone answered it or you got a busy signal. That's how it was when I was born and that's how it was when I went to college If you think about 18 years of stasis like that, I I mean, I don't think we're ever going to see that again. So to go from that to what we've got now, and God only knows what else will happen in my hopefully, you know, 40-plus additional years of life, that is something I want to talk about. I think that's, you know, it feels a little like having, you know, grown up with horses and now watching race cars,
0: What's your? I think a lot of writers, especially a lot of novelists, have a complicated relationship to technology and their own technological devices. What's yours?
1: Uh, complicated. <laughs> um, as a parent, I loathe all of it, I find it absolutely insidious and objectionable. As a writer, I'm incredibly curious about it. I mean, I've used PowerPoint, Twitter. I'm I'm getting a little interested in Instagram, not quite sure where that's going to go. So I'm always looking for other narrative strategies, and technology provides many. But I think one thing that I really do feel is when I think about why I became a writer, which really happened when I was about 18 and traveling alone in Europe in a very isolated state, I think one thing that I really worry about is just that isolation is, is almost impossible to achieve for a lot of people anymore. Now, in a way, that's wonderful. Isolation can be incredibly painful. And I love the thought that, that people don't feel as alone because of technology. But I also think it can be very hard to figure out who you are or what you want unless you experience some isolation. And so I, I wonder about, about what, what kind of difference that change will make, if any.
0: What kind of di- difference? Uh, people not being isolated, you mean?
1: People not necessarily um, experiencing solitude in, in, in the way that we used to.
0: Do you need a certain amount of solitude when you're, when you're, I mean, obviously when you're writing out things in long form, I assume you do. But when you're in a period where you're most creative, do you, do you need solitude?
1: I'm, I am an introvert. So, yes, very much so. I, I like quiet. Um, I like solitude a lot. I, I'm i certainly um, kind of drawn into lots of screen-related busy work. I mean, it happens, you know, it's easy to forget that a lot of what we do online is engage with products that are designed by psychologists to keep us coming back as much as possible. It's really important to remember that. They don 't want us to go away because that's how they make their money, and it's very very hard so i I am grateful that I write fiction by hand because i don 't actually have to have a machine involved in that process um, that's just good luck though I have to use computers all the time and i'm I find it you know I can get very fragmented um at the same time, you know, it, doing research with the internet is a lot easier than doing it without the inter- internet. Because I've done both. You know, I had the historical aspects in my first novel, and I spent a lot of time in the, you know, physically in the library and schlepping back and forth. So there's, there's, there. As with any development, there are good things, and then there are.
0: You, had, you obviously in the past had a personal relationship with Steve Jobs, who I think is seen as kind of the symbol of, in many ways, the symbol of the ways in which technology is changing. And I was just wondering, without having to go into a previous personal relationship, does it, does it complicate your feelings about technology that you're clearly thinking about these things in your work and, and you knew one of the people who's so closely associated with the changes in our society?
1: It doesn't really complicate them. I think I would feel exactly the same way about all of it if I had never known him.
0: What do you think he would make of where we are today?
1: I think he engineered it. <laughs> I think he saw it coming. He was very good at that. And uh, I don't know if I have any insights that anyone wouldn't have from knowing so much about him as we all do. This is, this is what he saw coming. We're, we're not beyond his vision at all.
0: Uh you mentioned at the beginning of the interview about thinking about nine eleven and and kind of a spark for thinking about american power um What do you think about nine eleven when you think back on it now how have your How have your feelings about the event and the era it ushered in changed in hindsight
1: That's a great question uh I mean, I think when I, when it happened, I, it was I was in a strange position because I was j- just that week publishing my novel "Look at Me," which had in it a terrorist who fantasizes about blowing up the World Trade Center. And what I the reason I was was writing. I hope about the that, FBI paid you
0: a visit, by the way. I just want
1: to. Well, I had already paid them a visit. That's how I came up with the character. <laughs> um, you know, I, so in a way, at that during the course of that book, which was, you know, I was writing in the years prior, I was thinking a lot about how American power and American culture had created a lot of hatred. That's ex- explicitly what I was writing about and why I, had, I, why I ended up writing about a, a person like that terrorist. Um, I, write about, I write from his point of view in the novel, that would be terrorist. So when nine eleven happened, I thought, wow, you know, it really is true. <laughs> People really are angry. Look at this. I think what I think about now is not that. I think about how our response to those events has created such absolute catastrophic chaos. <laughs> I mean, I, I, you know, what led to it is it, it almost, I feel I don't even have time to think about that anymore. I, it's, it's, it's the what if that seems interesting is, you know, if we had handled if Al Gore had been President, let's say, I mean, there are so many possibilities. If we had responded differently to that attack, how would how would our current absolute state of national upheaval potentially be different? I, I don't know the answer, but I, I can't help but think now about a, a trajectory that you know, along which we currently are in this moment that seems to begin actually with nine eleven and all of the missteps that followed that,
0: yeah, it's hard not to read a lot of the things that have happened in the last two years and uh, see them at least partially through the prism of nine eleven and um in this country, I mean, and uh, even the things that don't seem directly connected, like the election of Trump or whatever, it's it's hard to it's really hard to imagine things going on the same path and the society being at such a point uh, without it.
1: Well, it's hard to know whether we would really have ISIS if we hadn't invaded Iraq. I mean, there, there, it's, it feels very much like a, you know, a chain of dominoes. But there are so many factors involved that it becomes difficult, and and there's a danger of being simplistic. But for sure, you know, nothing about what we did after that has led to much good that I can see.
0: Last question for you. I mentioned before that I thought you were somewhat unique in being someone who, who writes novels with several different forms and does a lot of journalism. And I was wondering, are there other writers who have done both those things in the past and uh, who you kind of look at as, as role models or who you respect both their fiction and nonfiction?
1: Let's see. Well, I think Jonathan D. does both very well. Matthew uh, Matthew Clam. George Saunders does both. I'm trying to think about women who do both kind of heavily reported nonfiction and fiction. I don't want to leave them out, but I'm for some reason, no one is coming to mind right now. Um,
0: the one I thought of was actually V.S. Naipaul, just in the sense of, um, uh, you're a much nicer person, but uh, he... Uh, he... <laughs> He, That's
1: not saying much, from what I hear. <laughs> no, it's not.
0: But but still, you are. Um,
1: he he did a lot of novels
0: and using different form formats and narrative structures, and also d- did a ton of reported fiction, and uh, you know went to see the world and talk to people, and, and so that that was that was one person I, I was thinking of. But but it does seem like um, it's not not all that common the type of journalism and and fiction you do.
1: I mean, I think of someone like Joyce Carol Oates with her immersion in boxing, let's say, where she really became a kind of expert and wrote about it very authoritatively as a nonfiction writer and then also incorporated it into her fiction. So she, you know, she may not be writing news articles per se, but I think she's certainly someone who's reified her, her research into actual expertise which she then used to approach nonfiction. So she would, she would certainly qualify, and she's a hero of mine.
0: Jennifer Egan, your latest novel is—I shouldn't be telling you this— the latest novel is Manhattan Beach. It is out now, and um, thank you for joining, I Have to Ask, and good luck on your tour. Thank you so much. And that's our show for today. I Have to Ask is produced by Audrey Dillon. Our theme music was composed by Doug Chase. There's one other thing I want to tell you about today. The shocking results of the 2016 election left many people wondering how our country would change under a Trump presidency. Many Americans feared the worst, some hoped for the best, others leapt into action. Now, with a year gone by, Slate will take stock of the year that was. You can join a bunch of Slate writers for a series of one-on-one conversations with those at the forefront of politics, media, the law, and activism as they compare notes on the lessons, challenges, and victories they have seen over the past year and what they expect going forward. The event is called the People vs. Trump Year One, and it's taking place on November 8th at 7.30. So if you're in New York, you should show up at the New School Auditorium, which is at 66 West 12th Street in New York. You can get tickets and information by going to slate.com slash live.